I'm just going to read the first verse and verse number seven. This will just be uh, an overview tonight of the book. Uh, Romans, Romans chapter, and I'll read three verses in the first chapter is what I'm going to read. First verse says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, verse 7, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, verse number 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I ask your blessing upon the message tonight. Lord, I pray that you be glorified and honored. Lord, I pray for your mercy, your grace, and your help. Please, I pray your word would feed your people. That would be a help to them. It would help us to grow, meet the needs that are here. Father, please control what I say. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's never truly been converted, Lord, I pray for that conviction even this evening on their heart, that perhaps even this evening they would repent and place their faith in Christ. And uh, Lord, please work. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So why the book of Romans? Um, There is probably not another book in the Bible, the 66 books in the Bible, that has had a greater effect in the world than the book of Romans. The book has the ability to completely change you, to transform you. It will affect your heart. It will affect your intellect. This is definitely a book that It's true of all of them, but this is one certainly to get excited about. It is an amazing book in the Word of God. This book has has been prominent in history since the first century. It is considered responsible for the Reformation that brought about the Protestant movement. I'm certainly not necessarily a fan of Martin Luther, but his writings about this book are important. It is said that in 1515, when he was serving as a priest, as a professor in a Catholic university, was when he began teaching on the book of Romans that changed him forever. Um, he was going through it. He, he, is, he had just one year into his class. He had finished uh, uh, the full year of the book of Romans, and he was now completely different and changed. And I'll, read, I'll quote some of his own Uh, statements about that. He recognized by the end of that year that he had been wrong. What he was believing was not in agreement with the Word of God. And he began to understand for the first time in his life the doctrine of what it actually means to be justified by faith alone. He said this in his studies in the book, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies my faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on new meaning. Whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, it now began to fill me inexpressibly with a sweet love. The passage of Paul came, became to me the gateway to heaven. And those of you that have a Catholic background, you can understand that how in his mind, when he thought of the righteousness of God, he viewed that almost in the way of judgment. Instead of actually seeing what it was actually all about. Another man that the Book of Romans directly led to his conversion in, in history that 
uh, um, it would be a man named John Wesley, of course, who I'm sure you're all familiar with. It led directly to his salvation. William Tyndale, when he did his translation work on the New Testament, in his prologue about the book of Romans, he wrote these words. I think it meet that every Christian man not only know Romans by rote and without, uh, and without the book, but also exercise himself there and even more continually as with the daily bread of the soul. He knew the importance of this book, how it could change, how it could transform. It really is an incredible book. This is one of those series, and I, I stress this even with the book of James. It's true of all of them. I mean, I don't want anybody to miss any of the messages. You just don't want to miss this series on, on the book of Romans. This book answers some of the key questions of life, of faith, of theology. I'm going to quote from one commentator who dealt with all the questions that the book of Romans answers. Don't even try to write these down. I'm going to go through them very quickly. And this is all covered in this epistle. Here are some questions that get answered. What is the gospel of God? Is Jesus really God? What proves he is God? Why did he come? What is a saint? What is God like? How can God send people to hell? What will happen to people who have never heard the gospel? Why do men reject God and Christ? Why are there false religions and idols? What is man's biggest sin? Why are there sex perversions, hate crimes, and those other things? Uh, are, are, why are they so rampant? Why is the standard by which God, uh, what is the standard by which God condemns people? How can a person who has never heard be held responsible? Are the Jews more responsible to believe than Gentiles? Who is a true Jew? Is it an advantage to be in Jewish? Uh, how good is man? How bad is man? Can anyone keep God's law? How do we know if we're sinners? How are we justified and forgiven? How is a Christian related to Abraham? What is the importance of Christ's death? What is the importance of his resurrection? What is the importance of his present life? For whom did Christ die? Where can men find real peace and hope? How, and, how are we related? spiritually to Adam? How are we related spiritually to Christ? What is grace? What does it do? How does a person die spiritually to be reborn? What is the Christian's relation to sin? How important is obedience? How are law and grace related to each other? Why is it such a struggle to live the Christian life? How many natures does a believer have? What does the Holy Spirit do for us? How intimate is a Christian's relationship to God? Why is there suffering? Why uh, will the world ever be any different? How can I pray properly? What does predestination mean? How secure is a Christian? What is God's present plan for Israel? What is his future plan? Plan for Israel? Why have the Gentiles been chosen? What is our responsibility to Israel? How is a person saved? What is the basic bottom line for Christian commitment? What is the Christian's relationship to the world? What is the Christian's relationship to other Christians, to the unsaved, and to government? What is love and how does it work? How do we deal with neutral things and things that are neither right nor wrong? What is, what is true freedom? How important is unity in the church? Just, just some fairly important questions that are answered in these few 16 chapters in the book of Romans. It really is an amazing book. The book appeals to the most intellectual person and the person of little means. The person who uh, it might be a, 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 a doctor of philosophy or an engineer to a person who works for the government. It's a book that will help keep you grounded in your faith, a book that will help you excel in your spiritual life. So please plan to attend all. If you know, even if you know someone right now that needs to be here on Wednesday nights, send them a text, give them a call, say, listen, you need to start coming on, on uh, Wednesday nights. Again, I think it's so important that you grasp the book as a whole. You don't want to come in in the middle of it. 
Um, you'll still get fed from that, but nonetheless, seeing the book as a whole will be a help. So today, what I'm going to do is we're going to look at the background and then the author. So we're going to give a background of the book, and then we're going to look at Paul. Because really, again, to understand this book properly, if you understand where Paul's coming from with it, it helps greatly. So background of the book. This book was written about 57, 58 A.D. When Paul is writing this, remember, he's, he was, we just finished First and Second Thessalonians. He was writing those from Corinth. He's also writing this from Corinth, but this is now not on his second missionary journey. This is on his third missionary journey when he's writing this. He had planned, he wanted to get to Spain, if you remember. He wanted to go to Rome. There had been no apostle in Rome as of yet. Um, so anyhow, it's at the close of his third missionary journey that he, wanted, uh, that he wrote this epistle. However, of course, Paul would never simply make it to Rome by his own tra- travels. He would make it there, but at the hands of the Roman government as a prisoner, and that is the place that he would be executed. There's also an amazing quote from, uh, what's his name? Uh, I, 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 one of the, he was alive, what was it, like the 10th, 11th century, I can't think of his name, he had traveled to Rome, and he wrote, it was a great quote about what it was like to be in the same place where Paul had been executed. And, but anyway, I, I didn't save that one. It just came to mind just now. Um, he wrote this epistle uh, um, knowing uh, um, that the church, again, had never had an apostle come to Rome. He wanted to be very clear on salvation when he wrote it. He had the problems of the Judaizers sweeping through. He wasn't sure. Again, they had never met him. Remember for Paul, most of the churches in Europe and Gentile churches, he started. They knew him. This church doesn't. They've never met him. So he's going to be very clear. He wants to know that they're certain about salvation, exactly what it's about. He wanted them to know about him since they never met him. He wanted to be clear on what he believed. And as we're going to see, he is crystal clear on the gospel. So how did this church get there? Was no apostle who ever traveled there? The likely answer to that is found in the book of Acts, chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 10, we see at the day of Pentecost, when it lists the different nations that were listening to Peter preach at the conclusion of verse 10, and strangers of Rome, Jews, and proselytes. So you had, you had Jews that had come in from Rome that were there during the day of Pentecost, so it's very likely that those were the men where this group got started, that they started to assemble, as well as the fact, I'm going to get into the city of Rome itself, you would have multitudes traveling there. And so, no doubt, some of the converts would travel into Rome. This was the key city of the world of that day. Rome, the city itself, let's talk about that for for a few minutes. Let's just look at the city itself. It had a population, at this time, the, the estimations are really sporadic. From three quarters of a million to three million, that was in Rome. Most agree, and most sources I read, several different sources almost all agree, and one guy even listed how they come to that, how they came to that conclusion. They believe it was right around one million that would have been in Rome, which did make it the largest city in the world of its day during the first century. And what I thought was interesting, I didn't read this, but you think about this. Remember when we went through Matthew, when we got into the time of the Passover near Christ's death, the population of Jerusalem during those weeks swelled to one million. It's likely, then, that during the 
during that time of the Passover, even during Christ, the time that Christ would be crucified, that the city and population for the moment was actually, uh, uh, the largest in the world, was actually Jerusalem. <clears throat> Rome was the greatest city of its day. Literally, the capital of the known world. A common saying in the first century, that really that we still use today, is all roads lead to Rome. Paul, as we're going to see in his letter, had a strong desire to get to Rome. He wanted to see it. He wanted to go there. He wanted to preach. Rome, in world history, was one of the most carefully planned cities in the ancient world. It had amazing white marble temples, palaces, a public square, a, a forum where, where all the business, the shopping would take place, where the games would happen. People would gather and meet with friends and family. Very structured and organized in that sense. And then the wealthier Romans lived in really big houses built around these beautiful courtyards that really probably took up... There was one professor in Chicago that wrote about it. So they really just took up too much of the territory. And, uh, but the wealthy had that. So they would have their huge houses around with lot, lots of property and gardens and whatnot. While the poor lived in really nasty apartment-type buildings and pretty filthy into how they would live. There was somewhat of a middle class established there, and, uh, but, the, of course, when you're dealing with such a pagan culture, they had great trouble. They, they, were, they were looked on as not, very, not having a lot of morals, ripping people off, and, but things like that. But they did have a little bit of a rise of a middle class, and those were those that knew a good trade for the day. Politicians in the area were, of course, common throughout the city of Rome, and they bought people's support. They offered free food, entertainment. Um, of course, the government organized, different than the United States, the government organized the sporting events, the chariot races, the gladiator fights. Um, they wanted to keep the people entertained. It was part of their philosophy of control. School in Rome was interesting. I'm going to quote from the source for this. Very few children actually went to school in ancient Rome as far as a public school system. For most, the education of the children was in the hands of the family. A mother taught her daughter how to manage the household, how to prepare and cook, how to make the family's clothes. The father taught his sons the practical necessities of life, reading, writing, arithmetic, and the laws. It was also the father's job to teach his boys proper conduct, the qualities of virtue, dignity, gravitas, seriousness is what they mean by that, um, included in a son's lesson was how to show respect for Roman customs, for tradition, for the gods, and for authority. Rome, of course, its religion would be filled with pagan temples. Uh, and if, if you know anything, a little bit of Roman history as compared to Greeks, when, of course, you, you had the, the, the Greeks had, dominated the, had conquered the Persians, the Romans had conquered the Greeks, and so the Romans just put different names on the Greek gods. That's why you'll, sometimes you'll see two names for the same fake idol god. Because one's a Roman name and one is a, and one is a Greek name. In Rome, they have their dominant gods that were there. Jupiter, Juno, uh, Minerva uh, were the common ones. And of course, they considered the emperor himself basically deity and they wanted the emperor worshipped. So... This city that we're, we're looking at here, where these Christians are, is the capital of the known world, a city of about one million. 
Now, as far as an overview of the book itself, you should think about this. The book of Romans quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book, 57 times. The most common words in the book of Romans are these. The word God, 153 times. The word law, 72 times. The word Christ, 65 times. The word sin, 48 times. The word Lord, 43 times. And the word faith, 40 times. Chapters 1 and 2 deal with man as a lost sinner. How the gospel is the answer in such a broken world. Chapter 3, we begin to see that Christ is the propitiation for man's sin. Christ 4, we have the example of Abraham and and how works do not play a role in salvation. Chapter 5, we get into the answer being Christ with a comparison between Adam and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, we get into Christ and His grace, the true motive to do what is right. Chapter 7, the real purpose of the law then. Why the law then, if it's all in Christ? Chapter 8, we get into the law of the Spirit, the power for the Christian living being God's Spirit. Chapter 9 through 11, is parenthetical, and I'm seriously debating doing something different when I went through any other book. I might go from chapter 8 right to chapter 12. It really flows that way. And then come back to 9, 10, and 11, which are parenthetical. Anyhow, chapters 9 through... Uh, 9 through 11, parenthetical, what about Israel? Chapter 12, the transformed life of a believer. Chapter 13, our relationship to government. Chapter 14 and 15, our relationship to each other. And then chapter 16, he gets into closing discourse as he finishes the book up. Um, Again, I expect, I I think I can get my time frame down realistic. I I expect us to be in this book probably about 18 months. Uh, I think that's what it'll take. I don't think it'll take longer than 18 months. And, of course, we'll be here three years from now. We'll still be in the book of Romans. Um, But I expect it around 18 months um, to finish this up. Now, let's talk about the author some more, the Apostle Paul. Again, you will understand the book of Romans much better when you consider and understand the Apostle Paul. We've been looking at this amazing man as we went through the book of Acts. So we have a really good head start on this, as this is going to tie, tie in just... Uh, very well uh, with the book of Acts and the book of Romans. As you know, Paul grew up in Tarsus. Um, he, he was a Roman citizen as his dad was. He grew up learning the trade of his father, working with hides and leather, becoming a tent maker. At 13, he headed to Jerusalem for school. He went into one of the finest Jewish schools of his day, uh, the school of Gamaliel, and that was considered it. He was the grandson of the man who, in Jewish history, was considered the greatest teacher of the law, apart from the true prophets like Moses and whatnot. So he, he was, this man was his grandson. Paul was taught in that school. After he graduated Jerusalem, what we can, what we can by deductive reasoning, conclude is, is that he did go back to Tarsus because we know Paul never met Christ. So he was not in Jerusalem during the years of Christ's active ministry. So it's very likely, the only thing we can possibly put together is that he went back to Tarsus during that time. Um, Paul, as you know, he was a zealous Jew, extremely, strongly committed to Judaism. He believed it with everything he had. He was passionate. He was strong in it. As he called himself in Philippians 3, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, blameless. The guy believed it. Of course, when he heard of that, when he was sitting in Tarsus, when he heard about the rise of Christianity, he determined himself, as a Pharisee, I want the authority to put it to a stop. I'll end it. That was out of his passion and his zeal. Little did he know how ignorant he was, but he was going to find out. 
So he himself takes on the task to try and stomp out the rise of this new teaching, these churches of Christianity. He began to persecute, imprison, and kill. As we know, he was responsible for the death of Stephen, the very first martyr in the Word of God. However, as we stress going through the book of Acts, there is no doubt that Stephen's life had a massive impact on who was Saul at the time, of course. I mean, as the Bible tells us, he would have been there when he heard Stephen preach. And it says, could not argue with him. This was Paul, one of the greatest minds, one of the greatest intellects. And when he heard Stephen preach, and, and what Stephen was doing is before, before his Jewish brothers was telling him, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah we're waiting for. It's him. And then, of course, we see his conversion in Acts chapter 9, where he's on his way to Damascus, again, to simply imprison, to beat, to torture Christians. But this was a man, think about this, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, boom, blinds him and puts him down, But think of how difficult it would have been for any Christian to get to the Apostle Paul. I mean, to actually have another man be able to witness to. I mean, God could have worked it out, of course, could have worked on his heart. I'm not saying that. But apart from that, I mean, this guy looked at you as the scum of the earth. I mean, he looked at you as a true blasphemer. He wanted you dead. But the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, appears to him. And the moment he realized, wow. Jesus is the Christ. Think of this man, the passion he had and stomping out. What he realized was he was the blasphemer. He was actually fighting God. This is why Paul says, I am the chiefest of sinners. However, after his conversion... Boy, does he turn towards Christ immediately. After all, it says in Acts chapter 9, straightway, immediately, know what he's doing? Preaching Christ. He doesn't wait. Now, we know what takes place. And from Damascus, of course, they wanted to kill him already. I mean, immediately. He takes off to Arabia for three years. After, After Arabia for three years, he comes back and he returns to Damascus. He can't stay there long. He has to really Damascus. Actually, they, they want to kill him again. And then he heads to Jerusalem for the first time. But in Jerusalem, that's not going to work out for him. They don't trust him. You know, this is where Barnabas, really the first time Barnabas meets him is going to be there. Listen, this guy's all right. It's okay. Anyhow, he does able to meet with Peter during that time. He heads back to Tarsus. And he stays there for a number of years. But then all of a sudden, now you have the rise of the church at Antioch, which is where we're at in the book of Acts. Keep that in mind. And then Barnabas goes and gets this same man. Saul comes to Antioch. His name is changed. He becomes the pastor of the church at, uh, at Antioch along with Barnabas. And we realize how important that church became. All of a sudden, Paul then, with the Lord's direct leading and calling, he heads out on three incredible missionary journeys. Now think about this. By the end of the first century, so Paul is getting going, you know, 40, 45 A.D. or so, things are really picking up for him, missionary journey-wise. Sixty years later, by the time of Revelation, it's said that there's about 500,000 Christians in that short amount of time. Incredible. Now, as I finish this, what led to Paul's success? I know as I was reading, studying this, and one, com- 
one uh, commentator was talking about Paul in regards to his success, and I thought he made some, some great points about it. And I sort of want to jump off, use some of those as a springboard. One, Paul was a man who clearly knew the Word of God. Not only did he just know it for knowledge, what's more important about it is this. Many people can have knowledge of the Bible. But what Paul did with the knowledge was he, he thought biblically. He did. We're going to see that in the writings as he, in the way he refers to Abraham. We're going to see how we approached everything biblically. Man, how we need people today that will actually try and think biblically instead of selfishly. Instead of what's culturally relevant. He was biblically minded. Number two, he was determined. Paul was the guy, there is no way you got him off course. I mean, he, think of how many people quit at just the slightest. I, I've had, there, there's times I'm just amazed. I'll deal with things that are just really nothing. Just nothing. Tiny, tiny, tiny adversity. Adversity is not even the right word. Well, I quit. I'm just fine. <laughs> quit. <laughs> really. Paul was a guy... He was determined. He was. You could put him in prison. You could beat him. You could shipwreck him. You could discourage him. You could threaten him. You could stone the guy to death. He'll just get up, rise up after you drag him out of the city. You could fall out of a window when the guy is preaching, break your neck and die. He'll just raise you from the dead and tell you you're going to finish. I'm going to go finish my sermon. You're still going to listen. Now, if you fall down from up there and die, I'm not an apostle. You're dead. So you don't have to listen to the rest of the message. Paul was a man who he said before his death, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. He was a man who thought biblically. He was a man who was determined. I am finishing. And by the way, I could use this for my message for Sunday night, by the way, for these same points. Thirdly, what, what he see ahead, and, I, and, I'll, and I'm going to finish with this. He also had a very loving heart. This was a man who, as, as we see, we come through at times, would certainly not want to compromise or jeopardize anything he felt that he was doing for the Lord. But boy, his love for God and his passion for God was above everything else in his life. He never put self first. As, 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 he, as he even said in 2 Corinthians, the love of Christ constraineth me. It was in truth his motivation how much he loved God. His purpose of his life was to glorify God. That, that stemmed from his love for the Lord. Philippians chapter 1. When Paul was talking in those great verses in that epistle said this. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. With that passion and that love he had for God, his ultimate purpose, as we see here, it led to that. That he would simply glorify God. This is why when this guy was in prison, he had joy. 
This is why when this guy was in prison and even other Christians and preachers are, are, are belittling him. And he, the guy just didn't mind. He was fine with it because his life was truly about glorifying God. And the truth is you mix a biblical mind with a determined will and somebody who has a strong love and passion for God, you'll get an Apostle Paul. That's exactly what you'll get. You put those together. With every head bowed and every eye closed.